Now, today we consider our, continue our series on the Apostles' Creed, that creative title that we had. We reminded ourselves this, the Apostles' Creed is from the past, but it should, it should not be relegated to the past. It is for us in today's day and age, not just for those who have gone before us. It is timeless. The purpose of the series, we want people to see the essential doctrines of the faith. And there's two key, ideas, two key ideas in the series. Number one, there are essential beliefs for Christianity. In other words, you can say, I'm a fan of Christianity. I'm a fan of Jesus. I love what he stands for, etc. doesn't mean that you are a believer. It does not mean that you have been redeemed by God. And there, there are essential things that we must believe in order to be a sincere, genuine follower of Jesus. The second key idea is this. God's people are called to seek both unity, um, are called to seek unity while embracing diversity within the church. So where are we to be unified? Around those essential beliefs. Once we get past that, we start talking about some of the more minor things. Let's not sweat it. Let's not get caught up, for example, on how old is the earth. You may think it's 6,000 years old. Some of you may think it's 10,000. Some of you think it's millions of years old. It doesn't matter. I don't care. As long as you say, God created it, everything, out of nothing. That he is the one who didn't need any help in the process. We believe is more important than I believe. I can get lost. You're going to see that in some of the stats we'll look at this morning. I can get lost. We, the historic churches, affirm these things over the years. So we believe is more important than I believe. We can't just know about God in our heads. We must encounter him in our hearts. And we can't just know about Jesus in our heads. We must encounter him in our hearts. Guess what you're going to hear next week about the Holy Spirit? We can't just encounter the Holy Spirit in our heads. We've got to encounter him in our hearts. Now today, today is when we look at specifically parts of this um, summary, if you will, from our Apostles' Creed that talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to know that every pastor is, is asking two questions every time we prepare one of these sermons. This is not for you to memorize, or to, I just want you to get on the inside. There's two questions we're asking every time we preach a sermon in this particular series. Number one. Why is this doctrine essential for justification? Why is it absolutely necessary for our justification? And number two, how does this doctrine help bring unity to the evangelical church? I'm going to tell you right now, this is the granddaddy of them all. What we will talk about here in the next few minutes, and I only have time to do brief drive-bys on the most important essential elements of the resurrection. Meaning, why does the resurrection matter? I can't park on it for, for very long. There are an entire series that are created on any one aspect of the four things we're going to look at here today. But this is the granddaddy of them all. This is the most essential thing for us to believe as Christians. And if you take this element out of the Christian story, guess what? You do not have a Christian story you have a wonderful story that has a nice moral lesson to it, but you do not have a Christian story. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are fools. We're morons. We're idiots. For devoting ourselves to something... To really believe that some dude died and was raised to get him from the dead, you're, you're throwing your whole life away. 
We believe it happened. If it didn't happen, then I promise you, the scriptures tell us we're, we're, we're not really good dudes. We're fools. So this is the granddaddy of them all. This is what we are, are most united around. We cannot give up on this one. I want to let the cat out of the bag here at the beginning. Just recently, Barna came out with some more research, and he found that those who claim Christianity as their particular religion were now approaching close to half of the people who claim Christianity that are under, that are, that are not Gen Xers, not, uh, so millennials and, and um, um, uh, below, uh, believe in the crucifixion of Jesus, but not in the resurrection of Jesus. That is amongst those who claim Christianity as their religion. Now, what are we missing in the church? What are we teaching? I grew up in a highly liturgical church. You've heard me talk about this before. Father wore a robe. We sang the hymns. There's this huge, massive pipe organ. It's the loudest possibly. Like the decibel. You think Sunday mornings here is loud. The decibel's coming out of that pipe organ. It, 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 like ear-bursting kind of stuff. But it was glorious. It was, it was fantastic. I didn't appreciate any of it until I got older. I cannot tell you that I can remember a Sunday in which I walked away saying, I don't really know if this church thinks that Jesus was raised from the dead. There was no confusion in my mind because that church that I grew up in majored on this. Christ died. Christ was resurrected and Christ is coming again. I know those three things that church believed fervently and they would preach that and teach that till the very bitter end of the church closing its doors. It hasn't closed its doors. It's still thriving. It's still ministering effectively, but they could not and would not give up on those. I don't know how you actually refer to yourself as a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. I do not say that with any level of condescension. I do not say that with any level of... of um, I'm not angry at anyone. I, I, um, I, I don't get it. To so my friend, it's not just a matter of intellectually thinking that somehow or another this guy, a couple of thousand years ago, went into a grave on a Friday, and then somehow or another through ways that I can't really fully explain, I just know the Holy Spirit's involved, and there's earthquakes and other things, and that the stone got rolled away, and then he came back to life. It's not just believing it up here. What does that mean to you that Christ is resurrected? Let me ask it the most personal way I know how. If some guy said that he was going to die, and then he said he's going to come back to life, and that's exactly what he did. He died, and then he came back to life. If he predicted that, if one of the claims that he made was, I'm God, you probably would believe it. And then what if he had, had this claim that says, I want every facet of your life. That because of who I am, I want total and complete ownership of every part of your life. Now, if you were to come to me this afternoon and say, hey, David, I just want you to know I'm God. I would say, all right, this is going to be a great conversation. And you were to say, and because I'm God, I want you to know I have all rights to all ownership of everything that you have. So you're children are no longer yours, your wife is no longer yours, your home is no longer yours, your talents aren't yours, your car, your home, nothing is yours. It all actually belongs to me. And so I would like for you to pledge allegiance to me because I'm God. 
um, I'm, I'm not going to bow that knee. But in effect, Jesus did do that. He did that a couple thousand years ago. And now he says, I demand everything that you have. His resurrection either, either proves that he has the right to ask that, or it doesn't. Final thing here for, for this. We spoke last week um, about the brutality of Jesus' death. And for many of us, it was uncomfortable. For many of us, it, it was, uh, how do I get to the exit the quickest way possible? We had to turn away even while watching some of the things on the screen. There were just moments in which we were just absolutely uncomfortable. And, and why is that? If we remember nothing else about it, I think one of the reasons why the crucifixion was so brutal is because God hates sin to that degree. See, for us, we say, man, I, I just want to know that Jesus died in a nice, easy, painless way, and dying for my sins is nice and clean and easy and good. But the fact is that God despises and hates sin with such, he detests it so badly that he poured out his wrath on Jesus in that brutal fashion. And that same brutal fashion is awaiting all who die in their sins. That for all of eternity, separation from God will not just simply be a ceasing to exist. It will not be a nice little easy parting of ways. It will be conscious, eternal, horrific torment. And that causes me to pray like crazy that God would change the hearts of people who are headed in that direction. And it causes me to say, God, would you just somehow or another use me in the process? If folks don't like me because I'm just going to simply talk about you and offer them a way of, of being embraced by you for all of eternity as opposed to being separate, if they want to despise me, so be it. But God, i got to get this message into their hands. When people die... We honor them. Several years ago in Washington, D.C., I made my way over to a graveyard. It's a national cemetery that we have. And I noticed off in the distance there was one particular individual who was standing very, very still. And I didn't want to go mess with that. I didn't want to go introduce myself, etc. I just wanted to get a little bit closer to find out what this might be about. And I watched as this person was just in. And I came to realize that it was actually a military individual. And as I got a little bit closer, this individual actually invited me to come in and have a conversation. Got to find out what that person was there for. That person was there because their, his father had served in the military. His father had actually received a medal. And every year on this particular day, this gentleman went to go visit his father. His father had long since been dead. This man at the time was in his 60s. But every year... On that date, he made his way to that cemetery in order to honor his fallen father. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we do not gather to honor a fallen hero. We gather to worship a risen Savior. So once again, what role does that risen Savior have in your Monday through Saturday? If you have your Bibles, open with me to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. I would invite you to stand in honor of God's Word itself as we read just the first 12 verses 
of Luke 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Mary of mother of James and the other women with them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to be an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. You may be seated. It is the essential of all essentials that Jesus rose from the grave. What this says here is that his physical body rose again from the grave. Now, we know that after this, Jesus is going to appear to some men as they're making their way to Emmaus. And one of the greatest stories for me, the story above all others in which I wish I could have been a fly and been there and been present, would have loved to have heard Jesus explain to them how he was in every single book of the Bible all the way through. And these guys finally see who he is, then he's gone. I would have loved to have been there just to observe that. Jesus is going to appear to many other people, and he's going to appear in physical form. Jesus is not just appearing in some dream, as has happened many times throughout the Scriptures. He's not just appearing in some vision, as happened many other times in the Scriptures. It's not a figment of their imaginations. It is not a mass hallucination that took place um, in in the earliest of days. Jesus physically died, he was put into a grave on Friday, he was there all day Saturday, at some point on Sunday, he comes back to life, and the ladies go down to the tomb to go honor the fallen hero. But what they find is that there's a risen Savior. They go and they tell Peter. Peter and the other apostles say, it's it's women. I mean, they're they're prone to these fancy stories, and I said, I don't know. So he goes, he sprints down there to find out if they're out of their minds or not to get in. And there's no Jesus. There's no body. And while he was grieving the fallen hero, he cannot figure out why the body is no longer there. The scripture over and over and over again gives us no option to believe that it was some sort of mysterious spiritual, metaphorical rising. It was his physical body that was raised from the dead. Dead, Friday, dead, Saturday, dead portion of Sunday, back to life. Do you know anyone who that has happened to? Do you know anyone who made the claim, I'm going to die? And a little while after that, it's going to be on the third day, I'm going to come back to life. Do you know anyone who has made that claim and it has been fulfilled? I know of one. His name is Jesus. But if we were to see it in our day and age, I'll guarantee you, you would think twice about who this person is. If they actually did predict their death. By the way, David, I want you to know we're going to be playing golf. 16th fairway. I want you to know I'm going to get struck by lightning. I'm going to die. They're going to come out. They're going to declare me dead. They're going to take me to the mortgage. 
And then uh, a couple of days later, I, I, I'm going to come back to life. And I'd say, man, you really need to lay off the whiskey. And then if lightning struck him on the 15th fairway, and the, corner, the, the, the ambulance came out and declared him dead, and the coroner took him away, and they, they took him, and, and then somehow or another I go to, to visit that body on the day in which he said he would uh, come back to life, and he wasn't there. I would have second thoughts about who this dude is. Jesus rose physically from the grave. His resurrection in the scriptures is portrayed as the ultimate proof that he is the Messiah. But this is what we need to understand. His death and his resurrection are both essential for our justification. Just listen to these Passage of Scripture, Romans 4.25 says, Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 1 Corinthians 15.17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. His death accomplished salvation. He received the, the, the price that was necessary. Sin had to be dealt with, and so Jesus received the price of that. But if he's not raised from the dead, the scriptures tell us we are not justified before God. Are you beginning to see why this is an essential doctrine? To believe that somehow that Jesus died for your sins but was not raised from the dead, according to the scriptures, you don't have the whole story and you're still going to be in your sins. One more passage to look at. It's just the first four verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is what we looked at last Easter together. Uh, we won't sit here for a tremendous amount of time, but uh, what does this, uh, this passage have to say uh, in regards to uh, that, that uh, resurrection? Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, by which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And at the beginning of this, He says that our faith is hinging upon it. Christ physically rose from the grave. That is essential for us to believe. What does the Apostles' Creed also teach us? It also teaches that Jesus ascended into heaven. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He rose again, and he ascended into heaven. Turn over to the book of Acts. We earlier read from Luke. Same author writes this book of Acts. He starts this out by saying, hey, my first book, I told you all that Jesus began to do. And now in Acts, he's going to tell us about all that Jesus continued to do. Look at, the first, at verses uh, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. Easily, one of the most entertaining stories to read in, in the New Testament. They're standing around talking. Jesus has spent several weeks uh, in which he's been going around talking to folks, making himself available, eating, restoring people like Peter into the ministry, um, uh, letting people know I I died, but I'm back and and I'm in charge and you can worship me and you can follow me, all that stuff that he's doing. And then it comes time for him to leave them. Now, if you're one of the disciples, think about what's going through your mind. I cannot lose you again. Okay, I I thought you were gone. Cruelest party trick ever, Jesus. Thought you were dead, but you came back to life. And so now you're saying that you're going to be going away? So he's talking to them. He's telling them, I want you to know you need to go back to Jerusalem. And when you go back, you are going to receive power. You are going to be passive in the process. Power is going to come upon you. It is going to be outside of you. It is alien to you. It's not something you can manufacture on your own. Power is coming your way. But I got to go. He starts, David Copperfield style, going up into the sky. He is being lifted up and just, and in the scripture, I would have been doing the same thing. What would you have been doing? Anything other than the dude's feet. Okay. I've watched a lot of great basketball players that have really great skill at at, at elevating. I've never seen someone hover. Not even Jordan could do that. Dude just keeps going and they are, I have no idea what is happening right now. And if you've ever watched a plane or a bird or like you did when you were a kid, that helium balloon that got out of your hands, it went all the way up and you just can't see it anymore. I think that's what happened. Jesus is gone from their sight. And now all of a sudden, in the same way that they were at the tomb, there's two dudes dressed in white. So uh, what are you doing? We have no idea. Why are you standing here? Why are you stationary? Why are you continuing to gaze into the sky, hoping that somehow or another you'll be able to just see him? I want you to know he's coming back. In the same way that you saw him go, he will come back, meaning not in the exact same way. He's just going to kind of hover down. A few people gathered. Now we know it's going to be a much larger gathering in the same way, meaning he physically went up into the sky. He physically is going to come down from the sky in order to rule. He's coming back again. But until then, there's some work for us to do. And if he has been raised from the dead, and if his power that raised him from the dead is available to us, The Holy Spirit can usher it to us, and that ministry can be done. But if he's just a guy that died and is a fallen hero and someone who did a marvelous job of teaching and he's really inspiring, then he's just a dead hero. 
But if that power can now reside inside of you, there are at least three reasons that Jesus had to leave. He had to go away. It was essential. It was necessary for Jesus to go away from them physically, at least three reasons. The first one is he had to go to prepare a place for God's people. We see that in John chapter 14. You've heard it many times in funerals and memorial services. I go to prepare a place for you. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know. He's preparing something. I know it's going to be incredibly awesome. No mind is conceived. No, no ear is heard. No, no. We don't understand what it is that Jesus is preparing for us, but he's preparing something for us that is awesome. So he had to go in order to prepare that place for us. Now, why did he have to go? to? I don't know. He's God. He can do everything. He speaks stuff into existence. I don't know why he had to go to that. Scripture just tells me that. He went to go prepare something for us. Second reason he had to go was to send the Holy Spirit, according to John 16. The counselor is going to come to you. You have been inspired many, many times by the lives of people. I am inspired every four years by Olympic athletes, and I mean that sincerely. I mean genuinely inspired. I find them to be some of the most fascinating human beings on the earth because of all the work, all the sacrifice, all the dedication for a medal that is not going to last for, it's it's not going to generate millions of dollars for them. And yet I think it's, it's worth it. What they do, handful of people in the world can do what you do, do it. If you're an Olympic ping pong player, then play it. Bob's, whatever it is that you can do, I'm inspired every year. And so for about two or three full days after those Olympics are done, I'm, like, I'm getting back in shape. I'm sacrificing. I'm waking up at three in the morning. Then I'm going to go run. I'm going to come back and pray for the nations. And, and it, usually about 20 minutes is how long it lasts mentally. I used to actually try it. Jesus is not just an inspirational figure because of what he did. Hear me. The Holy Spirit brings the same power that Jesus had to live a perfect life. The power by which he was raised from the dead. The power to minister. That power is available to you because the Holy Spirit brings it to you. Now, I got so lost in preparation of the last couple of weeks on this particular aspect, I decided... That's it. I'm changing what we're doing. And so for a couple of weeks in January, we're going to talk about just this very thing. So more to come on that in January. The third reason, at least the third reason that he had to leave, had to ascend to heaven, was to intercede on behalf of God's people. We find this in many places, but Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, where it says this, he lives to intercede. So the scripture says that he is at the right hand. We'll talk about this in a second. He's at the right hand of God the Father. And in many ways, kings of old and back in the days would reach over to their right in order to ask a comment, to receive some advice, counsel, whatever it may be. The person who was at their right was their most trusted aide, the, the one who was the, the most useful and helpful to them. 
And so our prayers are being uttered out by us. And sometimes those prayers are very carefully crafted and we know exactly what we want to say. We write them out. We repeat them. Maybe we even uh, use the scriptures themselves to guide our specific prayers. Other times those prayers are more off the cuff. Other times those prayers, it says that we can't even utter. We don't have the words for them. There are hearts in position saying, oh God, would you just, and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Whisper into the Father's ear, here's what they need. Here's what she's saying. This is what's going on in the depths of his soul. Father, I am, I am I'm praying on his behalf, on her behalf, that you would provide this. And if he's not at the right hand of the Father, he can't talk to him in the same way. So the scriptures give us at least those three reasons why Jesus Left, he ascended into heaven. It tells us then that he is seated on his throne. I just want to read these to you. There'll be very little explanation, but Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who in, indeed is interceding for us. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Just two things I want us to know. I think that they're summarizing here. Two things about sitting down at the right hand of God. Number one, his earthly ministry was done. He sat down. He was in a resting position. There was no more atoning work for Jesus to do. Everything that is necessary for you and for me to be made right with God, to be brought into a right relationship with God, all that is needed, that was necessary, that had to happen, was accomplished by Jesus when he lived the life that we cannot live, but we should have lived, but have never been able to do it. He died the death that we should have died, but don't have to. And when he was raised again from the dead, he overcame both the penalty and the power of sin and death itself. So when he went up to the Father, everything that was needed to make us right with God in order to have a consistent relationship with him, it all was done. You don't have to do anything to keep yourself in God's good graces. Jesus did it all. Now, it's a good idea to confess your sin. It's a good idea to be honest with him. It's a good idea to pursue him with everything that you have, but it is no longer dependent on you. It was taken out of your hands, and Christ did everything that was necessary. So he sat down, and we can rest in his sitting. But the second thing that it shows us in him being seated at the right hand of the Father is that he is on a level playing field with God the Father. The scriptures are intentional. Jesus and the Father are one. They are equal. They are different in role and function, but they are the same. They are equal in value, substance, and glory. How much rest do you take in Jesus' work? Are you still striving? 
Still trying to figure out how you can get yourself in God's good graces or keep yourself in God's good graces. How much it's up to you in order to not disappoint him. Jesus did it all. Don't insult him by trying to add to what it is that he's done. Finally, it tells us that he will return again. Last Two scriptures for us to look at, again, very little explanation of this. It'll make sense in just the reading itself, but Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress on the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation gives us a very vivid picture. It gives us great dis, uh, uh, um, um, uh, pictures here for us to see Jesus is returning. And he's no longer coming in secret. He's not coming hidden away in a manger with only some shepherds and some animals that knew who he was at the moment. He's coming back in a way that everyone will see exactly who he is. And he's not coming to save the world at that point. He's coming to judge the world at that point. His first coming was so that he might redeem and save and gather unto himself a people who were willing to throw their hands up in the air, surrender the controls of their life, and bow the knee of submission to him. He will come again in order to judge the world, but this time he's coming with a sword and blood. He will come in the way that the people of Israel thought he was coming the first time, to establish a government, world dominance, ruling from on high, unmistakable about who is in charge. Jesus is coming that way the second time. And he's given us an opportunity to bow the knee of submission on the first go around. When he's crying out to us, mercy, mercy, come in grace. The second time, no one has an option. It will be a forceful bowing. It will be a clear indication as to who is in charge. And so what he calls us to do is this. Run throughout the world. Highways and the byways take this message to all who are willing to listen. That if you come to the Savior now, you will receive eternal life. If you do not, it will be eternal death. Jesus is coming. and He's coming to give eternal reward to his people. And to give eternal punishment to his enemies. I can't change hearts. You can't change hearts. What he's called us to is just simply to take this message, to have the boldness, to have the courage, to have the compassion, to have the vision, to just get into the lives of people and say, there's a better way. I close by reading this particular passage to you. It's Peter. 
Remember the one who denied Jesus, the one who said, uh, I'm going to stand with you. Everyone else is going to leave Jesus. And I just want you to know, I'm, I'm your stud. Like, I, I'm the guy that's going to do everything for you. And when the time came, again, he pulls out his sword. He does. He tries to fight off trained assassins, even though he was a fisherman in there. But 2 Peter chapter 3, I think he gives us some, some pretty powerful instruction. Peter, 2 Peter 3 verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, my beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, his return, will come like a thief And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you, meaning us, to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In light of the fact that he's coming, what should we do? Here's his final answer. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. He's coming. He is coming again. And, and Last night I had the privilege of going to a football game. There were two games that were played, one in the afternoon and one in the evening, and two teams dressed in orange were the evil ones. The two teams dressed in red in different locations. The good guys didn't come out on top. Last night I went to this game, and I got to tell my son that we were going to go together and that somebody had uh, allowed us to to get some tickets. And here's the thing, I didn't didn't pay a dime for those tickets. And then we got to the stadium because we went to this person's house and drove in his car. This couple, this wonderful couple, took us to the game, and so... They did all the driving that was necessary and all the things they paid for like that. And then I got there and then there was this wristband that I had to put on. And before I got onto this elevator, this is wristband, it says Dunlap Champions Club. I told my son, we're gonna have to suffer the game at the Champions Club. And we walk in there and, and there's folks that are there and just asking if there's anything that they can get for me. And over here I found some of the most wonderful cookies. And over here is some ice cream, and over here is some, some, uh, some wings, and over here is some glorious hot dogs and hamburgers and sausages and, and all the fixings and popcorn, and over here is tenderloin. And I didn't pay a dime. And nobody was confused. Nobody was in there saying, oh, you're David McNeely, aren't you? Nobody knew my name. I'm just some dude. But the people we were with, everywhere we went, 
They got stopped. They're talking to it. I feel like they know everybody in Tallahassee. They're celebrities. How much sense would it make to you if I were to go to that environment and say, you know what? I think instead of feasting on all this right here, what I'm going to do actually is I'm, I'm going to wait and I'm going to get over here to this trash can. I'm going to find out what it is that's in the trash and that's what I'm going to feast on. I want to eat the scraps. I want to go back. I want to go out to the dumpster, out, out, away from the stadium, away from this environment. I, I, I thank you so much for everything you've offered to give, but really what I want to do is to, is to have my buffet in the garbage can. Here's what Peter's saying. With Christ is joy and peace and contentment and all that you can feast on everything that he has and you don't pay for a thing. It's not because of you. You ride in on his coattails. Do you want to sit and dine with Jesus and experience everything that he has or do you want to go out to the garbage of sin and feast? And will you get some of your needs met? Yeah, but in the end, it's going to kill you. I invite you to come to Jesus, to remain in his presence, to just enjoy who he is and what he has done. And then I would encourage you with every fiber of your being to pray that God would use you to just simply introduce people to Jesus. That's our mission, church.